Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast about mental resilience, learning from hardship, all to build a winner's mindset. Hosted by myself, Jack Jarvis, and if you could like, follow or subscribe to the podcast, I would really, really appreciate it. Now today I am joined by explorer, survivalist and presenter, Ness Knight. She has completed challenges and expeditions all over the world. Paddleboarding 1,000 miles down the Missouri River, cycling solo across America and traversing the Namib Desert solo. She was also the first woman in history to swim the Thames River from Source to London. She has just appeared on Discovery Channel's First Man Out with Ed Stafford, and she joins me now. Ness, how are you doing? You good? I'm grand, mate. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for coming down and being on the podcast. Pleasure. Um, Thanks for having me. Anytime. And uh, we start every podcast the same. How do you define winning in your life? Oh, straight in for the big hitter, huh? Well, I do try. I do try. <laughs> oh, geez. You know... It's it's something that for me, I guess, has evolved over the decades. Each decade that comes with my life, I'm like, oh, that means something completely different to me. Um, in my 20s, definitely, when I started out being an you know, endurance athlete and adventurer, that was very much about trying to mark my place in the world, prove something to myself in the world. And so success for me then was being notable. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think in hindsight, looking back now, I think, God, that was arrogant. You know, what's, that's really fickle of you to, to feel like that. And I was like, no, that's part of your journey as a youngster, kind of, you know, making your mark and stamping your ground. And things evolve over the last decade of me doing this. My career has evolved and I as a person have too. And I guess now winning in life to me at this stage means having as few regrets as possible. I'm enormously curious about so many things. I'm obsessed with mental capabilities and pushing the boundaries back of what we think is humanly possible. Uh, I love wildlife. I love people. And so I think winning is not, you know, getting through this decade and saying, I've seen so much of the world that I feel enormously satisfied with myself with that. And I'm, I'm pretty much already at that place, you know, like, like touch wood, if I pop my clogs now... I'd actually be quite chuffed with where I'm at and what I've seen and what I've done. So, yeah, I guess for me, it's that being in that mental state where you feel very much um, at peace, very much content with where you've got. And for me, you know, for some people, you could say that that's a bad thing because being content could be just sitting on the sofa doing bugger all, right? But with my ambition in life, being content means pushing back those boundaries. I totally, totally know what you mean. Um, when I finished my, my row last year, I had to go and do that ultra marathon. You know, there's always more out there. So yeah. I, I get it. it yeah, yeah, where does it end? I know it's a dangerous But that's, game, that's the thing, like, when does it stop? I don't know. <laughs> you tell me, mate. Um, so we're going to get to all these challenges and, and the first man out. But let's go back. Tell me about your childhood and have you always been adventurous or is this something that you came on in your early 20s? Where does that sense of adventure stem from? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of an accidental adventurer in a way. Um, my career before doing this was in London, working for social enterprise, doing e-commerce and programming. It's a c complete world away, you know, teaching entrepreneurship. And, and so um, I kind of had to, you know, take a little break from that and ended up going and, you know, just having a bit of a hiatus from you know city life and going out and saying well I'm just going to start a paddleboard a thousand miles but going back even further to my childhood I guess I you wouldn't have seen this coming 
I look at my childhood friends that I had and they're absolutely baffled as to where I'm in at, at in life now. They never thought that they'd see me doing anything of the sort because I was incredibly shy, very introvert. Um, I had a wild and vivid imagination as a kid and I was very tomboyish. I grew up with two older brothers and, you know, in South Africa, that's where I was born. That's where I grew up for the first 15 years of my life. You know, it was very outdoorsy and um, I, yeah, I lived in my own head and I, I went through school and I actually really struggled you know, really battled because I had this huge, enormous um, amount of energy and creativity and, you know, curiosity about the world and very tomboyish and wanting to go, you know, go get and do stuff. Um, but I didn't know how to communicate that to myself or the world because I was very introvert. And so, yeah, it's been quite a journey, I guess. Um, I think growing up in South Africa probably planted the seed for a lot of outdoor stuff because, you know, you go on holiday and it's safari and you're out there in the bush and, you know, um, very outdoorsy lifestyle in South Africa but yeah it's been a hell of a journey and it's, it's been evolving over the years and I, I can't say that there's a catalyst or anything like that for me suddenly doing what I'm doing I think it was hugely accidental and just a, a long journey of saying I'm really uncomfortable as a 15 year old girl in this position where my friends are pretty shitty to me so I hope I can swear on the spot you can yeah, yeah yeah don't worry <laughs> got a bit of a potty mouth <laughs> um and we're gonna get on just fine because so have I <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no I had, I had a rough time because I was uh, yeah I just I couldn't express myself very well um and so I had to I got to such a low point with that um as a youngster that I promised myself that I would a find the thing that I was most passionate about in life and do that and not follow what everyone dictates I should do everyone always wanted me to play with dolls and do very girly stuff and I was like that's just not me um but I also promised myself that I would face all my deepest fears and maybe going through that hell as a kid as an introvert kid um, was maybe my catalyst, I suppose, because from the age of about 18, I just sought out all the things that most terrified me in life and just went for them. Um, and I absolutely shat myself, but <laughs> I did it. And so quickly, having go going through that and putting yourself in the deep end, you just transform so fast. Totally, that old baptism by fire. Yeah. You've got to. So it's interesting you should say that because I always think, I didn't have a background in rowing, but I always remember I always remember this when I was younger. I'd send to my mum, I'm going to climb Mount Everest one day. And she'd be like, Jack, you're five. Like, let's chill out here a little bit. <laughs> little so did she know. Yeah, little <laughs> did she know it could be on the cards um, next year. It's handy, though. I'm actually, you know Nims? Yeah, Nims yeah, yeah. So I served with his brother-in-law. So oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, So how lucky is that to have Living a friend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Nims is an absolute legend. I mean, like, talking about pushing back the boundaries of yeah, yeah. what's humanly possible. Jeepers. Yeah. TJ, if you're listening to this, mate, I want a discount for Everest next year. <laughs> um, mate, I, I was also thinking of going to Everest. So yeah, I, yeah. Can I, like, get in on that? <laughs> Just putting that out there. <laughs> um, so, Ness, you said you wanted to do things that scared you. Paddleboarding a thousand miles. Talk me through that expedition. That Was, was that the first one? That was the first expedition. It wasn't the first thing that scared me, though. Okay, no, I'm sure not. <laughs> um, yeah, by that stage, I'd grown quite a fair amount of confidence. Um, but yeah, I just... I, so how I, old were you then? Um, probably early 20s. Okay. Can't remember exactly. Um, early, mid-20s, around there. Getting old now, geez. Um, and yeah, I just spent so many years working in that corporate world and teaching other people how to find a way to make money out of doing what they love, being an entrepreneur. And... I was sitting there lining someone else's pockets myself and I was like, God, I'm really like not doing what I'm preaching to others to do and, and teaching them how to do it. So I just quit. I just walked in one day. I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm leaving. This is great, but I'm leaving. Um, and headed out to stand up paddleboard um, 
and yeah, it was a thousand miles. I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into and it was an incredible journey. It was a team one. So yeah, we, we went down that river. There's a huge amount of dynamics going on that expedition. That's a whole another story. We won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was, it was an incredible journey. We, you know, we had some crazy wild and wonderful experience i remember at one point we were coming down the river and we we had the sandbank on the side and we decided to just camp there it was really beautiful we went up to the top of it um we were on the inside of the river at that point on that corner and we camped at the top and then about i don't know 10 o'clock and close to midnight at night we heard a lot of voices and shouting across the the way and uh all of a sudden we heard gunshots we're like oh shit you know we're we're like right next to a firing range and there's a bunch of hillbillies out there going absolutely balls to the wall on the Saturday night drunk as heck like okay this should be fine we'll just be quiet and a few minutes later this massive beam just like kind of swung across the waterway and just stopped on our bright yellow paddle boards and tents and they were just like ooh, and it just went dark and then it came on again and we're like oh you know what's happening now and it was exactly what we thought was um we were just kind of bait for them to play around and muck around with and they were like they started firing at us but you could tell that they were trying to fire close enough to scare us but not, not necessarily hit, uh, gas yeah. but they were drunk as hell yeah. <laughs> and so you know, we were in the tents and um you just hear these bullets literally like one of one of the ones early on just came right underneath the front of my <laughs> my tent door um under into the sand and you just hear the whoosh, whoosh, and like straight over your head and so we army crawled our way out of it went like around the back there and just waited a couple of hours so we were like we can't call up the authorities because they're not really going to do anything out there. They'll have a chat to the guys, be like, listen, you know, what yeah. the hell is going on? And then they'll get pissed off and they'll come back with their mates and be like, no, fuck you. Yeah. What are you done trying to get the authorities on us and yeah. like, do it again? So, yeah, we just kind of left it, um, waited for, die down, for it to die down. But no, that was a cool expedition. It was really cool. But by the end of it, I, I figured out that I... I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life yet and I didn't want to go back home and I had oh, a few hundred dollars in my accounts, US dollars because I was in the USA at the time and um, so yeah, I borrowed men's shoes, two sizes too big, got a bicycle that was older than I was, um, got panniers from the 1960s that were crumbling and falling apart and just hashed together, big borrowed, still didn't really steal um, but I got all this equipment from people that were just really supportive and I was like, I just want to go west across the USA, I don't know where I'm going, I'm going to follow my nose and just go and just do this thing solo and figure out what my next step in life is going to be and yeah did that and as I was doing it social media was in its infancy at the time and so I was doing that whole blogging thing you know and getting stuff out there and telling the stories and all of a sudden this huge wave of curiosity of people following that were like oh this is cool and they were living vicariously through me and there was this huge demand at the time for women going out there yeah. doing stuff you know because there's always been women and women have always done expeditions done crazy things around the world you just didn't hear about it you know, um, so suddenly there was this demand and this hunger for that. And me being entrepreneurial and teaching entrepreneurship for many years, I was like, hang on a second. I'm loving this being out here doing my thing. And I can make money out of this curiosity that people have in this. And so I just monetized that. And I was like, right, I'm just going to start a career, see what happens with this and see where it goes. And I want to talk about, you know, you said team dynamic. So the paddleboard was a team thing and then you went solo. What are the differences? Because I often get asked, why did I do the row solo? And I say it's because it's team dynamics can make or break a, an expedition. So what was the uh, the big differences between the solo and then your team 
uh, expedition. Oh, it's the hardest thing in life to get right, isn't it? Whether it's in a corporate environment or out there doing these kind of crazy expeditions is team dynamic. Well, um, for most of my career, I actually did stuff solo yeah. because that first experience scarred me so badly that I was like, I'm staying that well That doesn't surprise me. I've, <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of you know friends who have done stuff with teams and they, they have said to me, they were like, mate, if it makes it harder. You think it'd make it easier, more more people, more, mm-hmm. you know, hands on deck, but it just does not transfer that way. No, and you, you know if what? If you get it wrong, that is. If you have a great yeah. team, you know, it can Completely. be fantastic. And you know what the thing I realise about team dynamics? Like, we'll dive, dive into the solo versus that again in a second, but the thing that I've understood the most, having gone through a few teams since then, um, and speaking to a lot of people in the corporate world about their team dynamics and experiences, what people often do is they make a mistake of trying to go into each of the departments or each of the skill sets and expertise, as it were, and pick on paper the best person in that field and say, okay, they're the leader, they're the best of the best in their field, so we're going to pull them and we're going to pull them. and all, They get all these top-notch guys and girls and bring them together, and no one's taken any consideration or understanding of the personalities, the dynamics that those characters will, will have when they come together. And so you get a lot of egos coming into play, you get a lot of people that have different goals and outcomes that they want to get out of it, and, and that doesn't always gel, and, and so it, it kind of it looks like it should be the best thing on, on, the earth, on earth. You know, this is amazing project with these amazing characters that have this track record that's through the roof and they just implode a good, a good example is that's so why I interviewed uh, GB sprinter OJ Edaburan yeah. and he says the US sprinting team they just pick the four quickest guys mm. at 100 metres and then they're like work it out whereas the British team they'll pick you might not be the quickest guy but you might be good at uh, the third leg the third leg the cross um, when you go around the curve yeah 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 so a lot more yeah. thought goes into it whereas the US yeah. team are just like we'll pick the four fastest guys and see if they can make it yeah. happen and that's hit on it sometimes it can work great you know if it's a short sharp go for it kind of thing but over months and years stuff could really deteriorate um, you know there's a lot of itching and scratching well they haven't there. won it every year on the bounce so yeah. you know Exactly. Well, every four years on the bounce. Yeah, it's not consistent. And so, yeah, that consistency that people look for in, you know, long-term gains and winning, I think that comes from really understanding a dynamic of characters and, um, you know, the outcomes and what everyone wants to get out of something and what they can, the strengths that they can bring to the table. Um, so it's it's a it's a complicated game. It's not something that you can just say like, oh, that, that looks like it should work. No, <laughs> you've got to, you know, dig a little bit deeper into, mm. into how it should work. Um, so yeah, for for a long time, I I just wanted to do solo. I mean, uh, part of that was because of being scarred by that experience. Part of it was also my obsession with uh, neuroscience and mental capabilities, um, pushing boundaries, and that's been since I was a tiny kid. And so yeah, for me, going solo is just such an incredibly curious experience. You know, like how far can I push myself? Because for me, it's that fascination with if you're out there on your own in the middle of the ocean, you know, like you were or out in the middle of the African bush with the big five or in jungles trying to survive out there. If you're on your own, there's no one to rely on except yourself. So when it comes to decision making, you have to learn to trust yourself. And that's harder than it sounds because people constantly doubting, second guessing themselves. And you, you think that you're all confident and cocky, but you're out there in a survival situation. And so that's for me where the biggest growth has happened in my life is actually trying to go solo and say you you got to make it or break it because no one's there to back you up no one's there to kind of support you to be a sounding board to say oh I don't think that's a bad decision that's a great one what you decide is potentially life or death and I love that I love that and I've always come back off those expeditions walking six inches taller every time 
and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the row to have that experience where my decisions were ultimately life and death where everything's to play for um what really were your biggest struggles with that um probably the food i've got to be honest <laughs> it's always it's so, the food it's so, i know it's so bizarre though ness like i always get asked oh what's the hardest bit but once that's what i mean the body is amazing mm. once you've pushed through that first five days your body adapts like i remember the first five hours like oh my god i've, I've got another 90 it took 111 days I was like, my back is so sore. My hands are covered in blisters. My ass is chafing. And I was just like, how am I going to do this? But after that five days, you just get used to the, the backache. Your hands toughen you up. Desensitize, yeah, yeah, yeah. You desensitize, don't you? It's a weird thing. It does You just happen. get used to being alone. Yeah. And it's absolutely mental. Yeah. Um, you know, so once you've done that, those first five days, you just adapt. And I was never going to quit. Mm. And, you know, it goes down to the... It probably comes into a little bit of survival. You like, right, well, what are we going to do? Are we Are going to keep rowing or are we just going to stop in the you Canaries? You should step off the boat and then Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> what choice do you have? <laughs> so um, what I want to know is when did you make the change from sort of the endurance athlete stuff to, to survivalist? Because I'm presuming, pr- yeah, I am presuming that you weren't in survival mode when you were swimming the Thames. You know, obviously there was no, a, support, right. support, <laughs> no, I mean, a support crew and all I that. I felt like it at times. Yeah. I mean, like I hope in no one's eating when I'm, you know, telling the story. But I mean, Thames River, I wish I'd chosen somewhere that had clear, beautiful waters, or nice warm waters, you know, because that was muddy. You couldn't see anything. You can't hear anything because you've got your earplugs in the whole day. You know, you, you can't speak to anyone because you've got your head in your water in the water for 10 hours a day. But yeah, like going through that, we, we went through, I had a, someone supporting me on a paddleboard so mm. they can just like feed me food and, you know, set up a, a tent at the end of the day. And um, yeah, I got, went through an area, I think it was near Marlow, where they had sewage leaks. And shortly after that, I got profoundly unwell. <laughs> Happened to David Ill. Williams as well, didn't it? Yeah, he, uh, you know, I even I swam with my head above water, but of course, you know, it gets everywhere, this stuff. And yeah. I know you can see bits and places flowing. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, but yeah, I got to the point where I, just, I was just trying to push through it so badly that I ended up not being able to get to the edge to go to the toilet and you just shit yourself and you, <laughs> you swim well, through and then you have to take it off in the water, wash it off, put it back on in the water and be like, all good guys, nothing to see here. <laughs> like, yeah, so not, not quite the wild and crazy scary life-threatening but just not fun yeah <laughs> not no, fun how long did Don't it take you by the way god i think it was uh was it three weeks eventually because of the illness yeah. nice to take a few days off um just yeah it's only so long you can put yourself in a wetsuit before you're like okay time out yeah i think it was something like that so what made you make the switch <laughs> then to a more survivalist sort of expeditions you know for me it's it's just about <clears throat> You go out into the world and you do enough traveling and you do enough uh, experiencing of nature and people and it changes you. You come back profoundly changed. And it becomes a totally new journey. My career has evolved time and again. You know, before it was about mentally and physically pushing the boundaries for myself and, um, you know, doing that endurance athlete thing. And I, I realized how capable I was. I'd I'd succeeded in so many things of what I was unsure of whether or not I could succeed at and um so I'd uh, you know I'd press those buttons for myself and, and it was fine and and then I realized that you know there's stories that are bigger than myself out there in the world so I got really curious about um you know indigenous communities and tribes out there in the world and that ancient primitive survival because I was like hang on a second you know but the people's stories are fascinating and there's so much more to tell about them than there is about me you know I got a little bit bored after a while trying to you know tell people stories about my own mental and physical journey and these amazing things so 
I was like, what can I learn? Because I was in this growth mode in my life now because of what I'd achieved. And um, I realized that, you know, that for me at the time, I guess success was really, and winning was coming down to whether or not I was growing as a human being. And I'd kind of hit a ceiling of, of what I wanted to achieve in that um, in that realm. And so I went to San Bushman, I went into the jungle. I started being around these communities that, had a challenge that I don't think even in a lifetime I could nail down and master and that is that primitive survival you know these guys have it through generations of you know teaching and understanding and and living and being in that environment day in and day out and so that was the next level you know can you go out there with clothes on your back and a knife in your hand on your own in the middle of nowhere with no extraction and survive and come out of it can you do that for how long can you do that um and that for me was utterly fascinating. And just, I was like a moth to the flame with that and still am. What was one of the um, most amazing things you saw or learned from one of these indigenous groups? If you had to try and pick one, you can pick a couple. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we could be here for quite a few hours, mate. Um, you know what struck me the most is I just feel like having gone from city life out here, uh, to the middle of the jungle, you know, the Esquiba River, Guyana, South America. That's where one of the expeditions was. It really struck me, and this was the same with the sand bushmen in Namibia, um, spending a lot of time with them, was you know, I came from this crazy busy, you know, city life where everything's shouting at you, your phone's buzzing in your face, people are noisy, there's stuff beeping about trains and where to go, what to do, adverts shouting at you, and it's all just this noise, this buzz, and everyone's shouting and screaming to ga- grab and get your attention. And you become a bit lazy, don't you? Because whatever shouts loudest is what gets your attention. And that's the world that we live in at the moment. And I went out there and, and I realized, that, you know, they were going down the river with them and they'd be like, what can you see over there? They were kind of testing me and they were training us up a little bit. We, we came in as jungle toddlers. Um, you know, we thought we knew our stuff. We didn't. There were jungle toddlers out there and they were like, we're going to school you and teach you and you're going to be our students and, you know, you're going to eventually graduate. And, um, during that time, they would ask us these questions and test us and train us on stuff. And they said, what can you see over there? I said, no idea, mate. You know, I was in the middle of the river. Look, they were pointing to the bank on the side, probably about 30 meters away. I no idea. What can you see? Nothing. I don't know. What can you hear? Well, there's birds in the trees. Um, you know, and as we come closer, it's like getting to about three meters. What can you see? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm searching, yeah. mate. I'm searching. I'm looking. I'm looking. He's like half a meter away. He's like, can you see it now? I'm <laughs> like... Oh, the snake on the vine yeah. over there. Okay, mate. But what really struck me is, you know, that's just one thing that I struggled with, just seeing the right things. You know, they grew up in this environment. But their senses all around, the ability to, to smell, to hear, to see, to feel that entire environment in 360 at every single point in time and also have a sixth kind of instinctual sense because they've grown up with an a lifelong understanding of the behavior of animal, the behavior of the seasons, you know, the whole environment just makes sense. And it's this puzzle that comes together for them. And we've lost that ability. It's innate in us, but we've kind of lost it because we're stuck in this completely different Western world out here. And their abilities there just made me feel like I was just completely humbled. Like, heck, how did we lose this? This is phenomenal what they have there. We think we're so advanced out here. We've got nothing on yeah. them. Absolutely I, nothing. You'll probably know the name of the tribe, but um, there's a tribe in Africa, and they will chase like an antelope or something until it dies. Yeah. They will outrun it. Yeah. And I think that's incredible. I remember watching that on on a, on a some program, 
and I was just amazed. I was like, they literally run that animal to death. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. Endurance is phenomenal. I was in another one as well. I was in, where was I? Brunei. And the IBAN. And they did a booby trap day for us. So while we were at work. And you'd be walking down the, the safe lane. And again, it goes back to what you were saying. Could you see that? And you're like, no. And then all of a sudden they'd pull something. This huge stake would come swinging in. And you're like, oh my God, I'd be so dead. Yeah, completely. <laughs> I'd be absolutely <laughs> dead within a minute yeah that's why they call those jungle toddlers because like we would not have survived a couple of days out there in that <laughs> jeez so um you've done some some amazing challenges um but what's been one of your toughest moments um whether it be the endurance athlete stuff or or the survivalist stuff what's been a real tough moment that you can pinpoint oh, across the board it's always going to come down to the mental game isn't it you know that that mental fortitude and that iron mind out there and your awareness but i suppose most of all complacency because that's the fastest killer isn't it it really is and so my scariest moments would be all of the times that complacency kicked in or panic kicked in and there'd be things like i crossing the Namib desert solo on a on a fat bike and i remember coming through a, a gorge canyon area and uh, i was going through lion territory a conservation region that was um deep in lion territory and so I wasn't allowed to go through that section unless I had a lion warden they called them going ahead of me you know five ten kilometers just kind of scouting and on a radio with me saying hey just be be aware of this stuff happening and so I was coming through this gorge area and and I got this, him on the radio saying hey listen you're going to come out of this gorge you're going to go up down round left uh, there's going to be a river bend follow that over there um, and you're going to see a fresh lion kill um, 200 yards on the right so there's vultures as you know pioneer jackals all the rest of it just be aware of that um they're about here somewhere they're satiated but just be aware of it and so i just went into full-blown panic mode because i've never been in that you know he's 5k away as well yeah yeah he's not close (laughs) well he didn't tell me exactly how far he was just like just go follow the riverbend i'm like how far when? I bet he was so How blasé soon? about it as well, <laughs> and wasn't he's he? Like, yeah, and just before that, he'd be like, just be careful in the canyons because, you can, you know, you're boxed in, right? And um, by the way, on a fat bike, you look like a really tasty antelope, so good luck. I'm like, shit, <laughs> thanks. What do I do when I come across Pride and Lions again? Um, and, yeah, I, I just started panicking in, and, you know, we were heading uh, at some points out there, temperatures of 49 degrees Celsius, and um, it was... Uh, or drought period in the country, which I hadn't banked on. So a lot of the water sources that I was going to rely on were dry. So I was hugely dehydrated, pushing my limits in, you know, insane temperatures out there. I'm trying to go as fast as I could because we're on a, a, you know, we're filming the thing and we're on a bit of a a time limit, you know, and they're like, come on, Ness, (laughs) let's make this hard. Come on. (laughs) Um, So I I was really at the the very limits of what I could do. And um, panic in that that period of time just sent me you know i tried to push 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 as hard as i could and and i lost consciousness right next to that fresh lion kill um and luckily he had he'd come back um with his gut instinct thinking like okay let's just go check this out with his his landy and he found me just wandering around absolutely out super out of it like non-comprende mumbling you know completely insane um and so yeah it's it, again it's you know it's those fear is great that is so important in life to have fear across the board because that tells you something important good you know about how it's how, what you need to be aware of you know your environment around you it tells you a story and it's important that's part of our survival evolution as human beings but what is really dangerous is panic that's a completely different ball game that is a loss of control of yourself 
And so that's where, you know, you, you, you're unable to hold your composure. And it's always those times during any expedition where I've lost that composure and I've delved into panic instead of just that fear state where you can control things around you. Um, so yeah, there's been a few hairy moments like that. And again, also complacency, you know, there's so many times in, in the jungle where nothing would, you know, we were in, in a place in South Guyana where there was no extraction. The guys said to us, listen, you know, if, if you get, have something go, go wrong out there, we don't have any heli helis in the country or neighboring countries with a winch that we can have available for you. So extraction is a, a non-go. Yeah. Unless you can cut down an area of rainforest almost the size of a football pitch, then we can't get you out. So mm. if something goes wrong, you just need to, be, you know, you'd be aware of that. And that's a risk that you have to take. And so we're like, okay, well, th so I'm sure interesting. we'll be fine. Sorry to interrupt, but because yeah. I want people to know you're not cutting that down with chainsaws. No. So we had a casualty in Brunei, so we had to clear a, an opening, not as big as a football field, luckily, because it was a lynx. But as we were cutting down, another guy went down with a heat injury. So he then collapsed. So we then had two casualties oh to cut this. So, you know, we really, yeah, it's I no know small what... Task. No, it's not a small task. And when you're in yeah. somewhere that's primary virgin rainforest, yeah. you know, the size of those beasts, those trees out there is insane. You know, it's we, just we not I looked right? at him when he went down with heat, and I know it sounded really bad because obviously he just collapsed. He was fine. I remember thinking, you jack bastard. Yeah, why now? <laughs> why Come now? on, mate. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Pick <God>. your timing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, anyway, you were saying. Yeah, no, so it's, you know, you go out there in these environments and you get out there and at first you, you're super hyper aware of everything and nothing happens for a few days and everything's going super well and you're super chuffed and everyone's grand and you, you do start getting pretty exhausted and tired and, you you know, you're pushing it out there and, you know, everyone's not eating really well and... um. So you're a bit exhausted and you get complacency set in because nothing's happened and you're pretty tired and you're like, oh, well, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. And then all of a sudden somebody in the team, you know, tries to jump over a log and, uh, you know, pit viper is one inch away from their ass that, you know, is in strike mode. And you're like, if that, if they actually got strike, if something did happen, that's it. It's tickets, you know, and, and that's just because we weren't being aware. There were three people that went in front of her and could have seen that and everyone was just so blase and so just not caring to look out for anything it's like oh shit man you know like that's the stuff that goes wrong i had exactly the same so in that first three days because obviously there's ants that are huge like the floor just moves there, it's insane isn't and it <laughs> you'd be like that oh, really careful when you go to like lay down or anything like yeah. But then after like day three, you're so exhausted, you just throw yourself on the floor, <laughs> <laughs> probably straight in an ant's nest. You're just like, I don't care. I'm too tired. Um, when uh, you were in the jungle, you've um, eaten some oh, just questionable looking bugs. I want to know what was one of the um, worst tasting ones you've eaten. That's just what I've seen off your Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's updated now. So, yeah, um, out in Africa, it was um, these little grubs, but they uh, apparently there's a difference between the wood grubs and the ones that you get in, like, compost piles and in dirt and things like that. They go for the wood ones because they taste really good. The ones that eat dirt and literally they, half their body is filled with crap, like yeah. brown, horrible. It's the smell. It's I can't even describe it to you. It's just a stench that makes your eyes water and your nose just absolutely burns. It's just horrendous. So, yeah, retching those things up. 
oh, nasty, nasty. Yeah, they came, I think it was about 10 minutes late and they all came straight back up. They <laughs> did not stay down. <laughs> that fatty, beautiful nutrition that I was talking about did not stay down. Um, but yeah, recently in Taiwan, um, there's a higher, kind of higher altitude jungle, mountainous jungle that we were in um, for First Man Out with Ed Stafford. And um, that that is basically you have an infill and an exfill and you have seven seven or so days between and you know 70 to 100 kilometers and you race each other with the clothes on your back and a knife in your hand and that's it so um you just survival mode out there and i think it was about three days in and i was bloody starving um and we were very limited on what we could do out there because in taiwan you can't hunt so we couldn't get any substantial meat source in us unless it was fish um, and yeah, I was just sat there trying to get some, strip some bark off a tree. So I had some stuff to lash, you know, shelter later on. And I looked down and there's just this puddle, um, and it started shimmering and I looked closer and it just started, you know, like moving with little bulbous things inside it. And I was like, ah, ah, tadpoles, but not, not your tiny tadpoles. The ones are like your fingernail size and they've got little back legs and they black and they've got a long tail and they massive So nearly frogs, yeah. Yeah, like pretty much there, but just still that gelatinous state. And I was like, oh, those look like cool inky like things that might give nutrition shoveled a bunch of those back down my throat and it's like they they literally they get halfway down your throat and they're like no fuck this <laughs> mate we're not dying here in this black hole of doom and they turn around and they start trying to make their way get back up but they're like they're bitter as hell so you don't want to chew them mm. but you just feel them wiggling their way down it's nah, nasty, nasty nasty stuff yeah so this wasn't in a survival this was actually for the senior lads entertainment but we used to do initiations in the military i don't know if i can say that because they're like highly illegal now <laughs> but they did happen <laughs> and they weren't that bad but um and there's sorry let me do a little pre-thing to that story so on the all arms commander course you needed emergency rations mm. now i used to have two boost bars because they were the highest calorie chocolate you know quite nice what you'd want if you saw a helo and you were like right i need a quick burst of energy to run over to it but some lads were like nah nah you need to have like cat food in sachets, <laughs> right? No, listen, because then they were like, because you'll only eat that if you're in a survival situation, okay? And I was like, you're an idiot. But anyway, yeah. fast forward to my initiation. The worst thing I ate that uh, that evening, so we had like mealworms from pets at home, crickets, which weren't too bad. They were quite crunchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not too Pig bad. snouts that they had to barbecue, so that was just quite mm-hmm. fatty, quite nice. The worst thing, Ness, was the cat food. <laughs> It Poor was bloody honest, cats. Yeah. What are we doing? Oh uh, yeah, I know. I don't understand how they like it. Um, <laughs> no, but I think like to be fair, on the still on the topic of food, um, I think more the difficult things were the mental ones. Like when we were out in the jungle, um, we stopped on the side for for lunch on this rock, and two of the guys just like legged it into the jungle with the sound of some stuff that was happening in there. It's just a wall of green that they just melted into. And after a couple of minutes, there was this shouting and screaming. A couple more of them headed back, uh, you know, into there. We had these warrior, five of the best warriors from the the village down in the south of Guyana there that came with us. And um, like one guy was left, the old guy, you know, by the boats. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And he just had this twinkle in his eye. And we're like, it sounds like literally two flipping villages are attacking each other. Do we need to go and help? What the hell is going on in there? Huge shouting and screaming. And then it goes silent. And they come nipping back out of this, you know, wall of green. And just this hand pokes out with his armadillo. I'm like, right, okay. So you were hunting. But what the hell is the screaming? And this guy puts his face through, you know, the wall of green. He's a huge grin on his on his face. And he's just like, yeah, we got that from a jaguar. Jaguar. So they literally stole the lunch stole, from yeah, a jaguar, jaguar that was hunting that armadillo. Um, and I think for a couple of the girls, uh, you know, that was a, a bit of a shock because, you, you know, you're out there eating stuff that's really weird and wonderful, you know. Part, I think the hardest thing for us, though, was 
And it was so understandable for these guys as they're in the middle of nowhere, no roads in or out of their village. And so when they came with us to find the source of the village, uh, of the river, the Esquibo River, and then they come back down river um, to their village, they used that as a hunting expedition on the way back, obviously, because that's that's their food source, you know, it's their backyard. Um, and so they would do things like on when we were um, setting up our base camp and we had to trek because the water was too low, we couldn't go any further up river. Um, we'd make these trails and you know that we could follow back um, on on route down river again. And they would take tortoises and put them on their backs so that they couldn't move. Um, and they'd kind of tie things up to stuff, you know. And and so at the beginning, a lot you know a lot of our team would have really upset about that and kind of like what the hell is going on you know this is cool different yeah but it's a different but way of life this is yeah exactly you know like do you even know where your meat comes from yeah. it comes in this like paper polystyrene thing like you don't you know nothing about where your stuff comes from and or like what it's gone through so don't don't start talking i know um and i think maybe because factory farming so much nicer oh, yeah. right <laughs> um and i think one of the most interesting and probably challenging things was on the way back down the river they were hunting uh dwarf caiman and uh, for me, it was fascinating. Like, I didn't have such a, a block to all of this happening, you know, because it's their cultures the way they are. Um, it's survival, literally. And they take they have such a small footprint on their environment. And they're so respectful of it. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship they have with it. So I've got utter respect for the way they do things. But, um, you know, they, they, they would hunt these caiman um, and then tie their legs and put them under our seats in the dugout canoes. And they'd be sit, sat there for a couple of days thrashing around until we got to a place where we had enough of a base. You know, they'd take a few of them all the way home. But some of them, they would smoke along the way and we'd eat some of the stuff. So, you know, you're sitting there paddling down river and you've got this caiman underneath, like literally between your legs thrashing around. And it was just such a weird experience, but such a humbling one. I just came back off that thinking, bloody hell, at least they know where their stuff comes from. So it's harsh and it's really, it's a harsh thing out there, but... It's the way of life. Yeah, it's So survival. when we were in Norway and um, you do a survival ex out there and the locals bring a re- bring a reindeer and um, they were like, no one, no one's to film it. And, but I know what you mean, they have that symbiotic relationship. They use the whole thing of that reindeer and the way they dispatched Everything it, gets it must have known it was for the chopping block because it was kicking off. <laughs> <laughs> they brought it out. Uh, put the put the knife through the back of its back mm. of its head and it was dead instantly. But they yeah. used the whole thing, no yeah. waste. And I just thought, exactly. and a few of the lads were like, "No, I can't have any of that." And I was like, "Fine, go hungry." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More <completely>. for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it totally. was delicious. Yeah, you start going into like eating brain and stuff like that, and you know the hearts and all the the, the organs. And you're like, "Shit, we do none of this at home, and it's so nutritious." Mm, we waste so much of it. I know. You know, it's like um, massively talk about where your food comes from. Well, that's why hamburgers. The hamburgers, who am I, American? <laughs> uh, beef burgers, sausages, and chicken nuggets. They're not cuts of meat, are they? There. No, people look, knew what yeah. went into those. Come on, get <laughs> Your real. Your hot dog, just go and research that, mate. Being a role model, how important do you think that is and how important is, how important is it to you to be a role model for girls and women um, to pursue what they love or, or to push their boundaries to face their fears? Yeah, definitely. It's it's become a, a massive thing. You know, I never started out in my career thinking of that at all because I always just thought I was just a nobody, you know, just going out there, just doing my own thing. Um, but you realize that, yeah, you do have an audience and you do have, you know, like it or not, you're making a career out of eyeballs on you. So you have, therefore, a responsibility of how you go about your career and your life and things that you say, the things that you do. And, yeah, I do wholeheartedly take on that role model side of things because in you know I grew up as a, a young girl and 
in sports and in exploration and, and anything. I was, you know, the spotlight was on men. And so I just didn't know that there were all of these things that I could do. There were options as careers. You know, I just didn't see women and it's not that they weren't doing it. I just didn't know. Um, so for me, it's, it's a great opportunity to highlight that. You know, I'm not one of these extremist people that think you know, it's got to be all women or, you know, you don't fix an all men thing by doing all women stuff. So I'm kind of like teams should be completely mixed and whoever's got the best capability kind should of stuff. Win. Or yeah. should, should be picked yeah, for a job yeah. or succeed, yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not going to play someone just because they're a woman. Yeah. Whoever's best for the job, that's the, at the end of the day all I give a shit about. Um, but at the same time, it's really... Yeah, it's, it's really humbling and really great to be able to have, you know, especially you know, I've got a daughter now, 16-month-old girl, to be able to have girls kind of look at my stuff. And I think for the important thing for me is for women and girls and, and young guys as well to look at my channel and say, I'm not there with, you know, arse and tits out on top of a mountain trying to get games of followers and, you know, money, make money off of that. I'm, seen I'm a few like, of them on like, my uh, Instagram see, yeah. discover page. <laughs> totally, right. Like, you'll find very few where you can see, you know, me in a bikini or anything like that. And it's, it's that's not me deliberately trying to be the opposite way. It's just who I am. I'm a tomboy. That's just who I But, you know, I'm not relying on sexualizing anything. And I see so much of social media is about not just sexualizing, but just how, you know, it's, it's so much about the visual, about how you look. And for me, it's like... No, mate. Just, just go out there, and do shit, do stuff that's that's cool. Get even if just get your mates and go do some cool shit up a mountain, or you know, just get out there and have fun and just be raw and rugged and real. And and so for me, that's the biggest thing is you know I'm I'm really reveling in having a channel and a following where I can just go on expeditions and be in my eyes as kick-ass, cool female doing really crazy cool things, and people appreciate it just for that. Just for that. Yeah, appreciate that you are kicking ass, and you are really aren't Trying worried to. about that. <laughs> really aren't worried about the visuals because that first one on your Instagram, you're eating that grub. There yeah, is blood and guts, <laughs> and you're just absolute no emotion. Yeah, I'm saying, like like, it's impressive. I was like, oh my god, who am I going to interview? <laughs> who is this absolute? I know, like I've had to. I I won't lie. I am human, and I I have had to come to terms with that. A lot of the footage and the the images of me are looking absolutely flipping horrendous no like, you look like a badass no with but blood dripping down your I mouth you might look badass but i've like i just so can't, i just don't care anymore you like you go on these expeditions and for three months you don't have a mirror you don't know what you look like and you come off the end of it and you don't you know i cared more about the fact that i could my arms look like a rugby player and that i it was the strength of them you know that i had and the physical capabilities and you just don't care what you look like like when you can't see yourself and that's so refreshing and so for me yeah i've just I've come, you know, through such a, a brilliant journey where now I, you know, I love dressing up. It's great. And I have fun with that. You know, put makeup on for the first time in a couple of months with this today. But I don't care too much about that. No, I, really I, don't. I get it. So um, it's, it's fun. Tell us about this latest expedition with Ed Stafford. Yeah. I know you so mentioned <laughs> it a little bit early, uh, earlier, but tell me the details. Well, I can't, I can't give too much away oh, because, yeah, I know, it's one of those annoying things. Um, no, it was absolutely raucous, riotous fun and horrendous at the same time. It was a beating. I got battered, bruised. Literally, I came out at the end of it. Um, I remember the final day was such a hard push. Um, I got to the end of it and looked down. And I was like, why are my legs hurting so much? And especially my right leg. I looked down and I was like, my it was it was so swollen that it was overflowing my boots my jungle boots that I had and I still I don't know what was wrong with that I don't know if it was water retention and strain and stress if in the river I'd got washed away so many times down river and I trying to cross it I was just so battered literally against slammed against rocks but 
it was brilliant fun. So Ed and I just head to head against each other seven days, infill to exfil, survive with just a knife in your hand. And, you know, for me, I chose um, a route that, you know, we were up against, well, I was up against with my film crew <laughs> trailing me, um, you know, floodwaters going down there. And it was just, it was quite hair raising and a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I guess it was, it was another challenge um, trying to survive without being able to hunt. That was that was quite hard. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can um, imagine. But yeah, he's a bastard for having. He chose mountainous jungle to go through, and I'm like, really, mate? Like, oh, you could have chosen something a lot easier. But yeah, no, it was good fun. I mean, if you to pick something easier, though, no one would watch. No, so, exactly. Because people really love true. suffering, don't I they? They do. They're sick. But imagine if you were watching something and someone had to survive in a I don't know a Tesco you wouldn't watch it would you there'd be no jeopardy no <laughs> I know, despair it's like what's wrong with us as humans like I know that's literally why people follow is they're like what horrendous thing might you do like they don't care about the pretty scenery or the great beautiful stuff that you do. they don't care yeah. it's like when are you going to eat grubs again next <laughs> Ness like come on <laughs> so um We've talked about the challenges you've have done, but what about the ones that you haven't done? What have you got your eye on? Is there anything in the pipeline that you've sort of, sort of looking at or a challenge that really excites you? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, oh, as usual, the stuff that you just can't talk about because you can't <laughs> give it away. But one thing that is ongoing, um, I've, I've been doing it for a few years um, until the, pande- the pandemic hit, but we're carrying on filming now, um, is a, a documentary that I'm you know, filming myself about the illicit rhino horn trade. So that's going in, um, doing the next chapter of that will be going in. And uh, I was born in South Africa, which means that I've got a passport there. So I can do armed anti-poaching ranger training um, because I'm South African. Mm. And so they've said that they'll take me in for six weeks of that. And that means that then I can get on the front lines with those anti-poaching rangers, literally in the shots fired zone, um, understanding what they're going through and filming that because that's kind of a no access normally zone. Um, but they were kind of like, well, if you do go through that, you're kind of legitimately there, not, you know, just some kind of person we have to look after. Um, and yeah, that's following, you know, going through all the uh, criminal syndicates and getting some interviews in there, which is a little bit dodgy. I'm, I'm kind of iffy about some of that because you do paint a target on your back then. Um, there have been issues with people having a lot of trouble and certain people disappearing as journalists and um, it's it's not a play play world and I'm realizing the further I get the deeper I get into that the more you really you know you can't muck around it's not it's not just like a, a fluffy world of going in and interviewing and you know doing silly little documentaries um, so that's that's interesting you know having to have the security teams around you for that the amount of money that you have to have to, to set stuff up like this is huge it's extraordinary um, and then following that journey all the way to the Far East, um, you know, new trade routes that are happening out there. And, um, yeah, there's a few exciting bits um, to it, looking for uh, northern white rhino that supposedly are still out there in the wild. And people have only just seen signs of that recently. So, Didn't, Did you interview a a guy that farms rhino horn? Yes. Yes. John Hume. Tell us Super about him. Super controversial. Yeah, because I've yeah. got an opinion on him and and trophy hunting as someone that loves animals Mm. and i personally wouldn't trophy hunt Mm. but i can see their argument um Mm. what's your opinion on it yeah it's 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 a really tough thing i mean trophy hunting versus farming two different things um the trophy hunting side of things um you know it's 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 a really hard one because you can see that if everything did go correctly without corruption 
then money and funds would get to the right places as in you know the there's a limited amount of trophy hunting that would happen the funds would go to the community the meat would go to the community um and the conservation in that region and that's kind of like you know all supporting itself and that on paper makes sense um having grown up in South Africa and also done a lot of investi investigations out there. It's, it's just, e even with a lot of the, um, you know, the, the conservation organizations, it's big business. Yeah. And so it's, it's just, if it did work without the issues happening around it of corruption, perhaps there's a valid point in that, you know? Um, and, and there's people have had great arguments for that and really brought me around. Um, I still, you know, like I can't get my head around just trophy hunting for the sake of having, having something on the wall yeah. that I don't understand. If you need to kill, and the meat goes community and think I totally, you know, that needs to happen because we have squeezed the nature and, and wildlife to such a point that we and now have to manage as it. Well, yeah. And indigenous communities, exactly. And we now have to manage that because we've caused so much issue because of our encroachment on that. Um, no problem with that, having to manage that. Um, and I think there's, you know, we have to get to the root cause of that, which is human encroachment. But, um, yeah, when it comes to the farming side of things, this is a really interesting thing um, that we're still ongoing filming. Um, he's he's facing bankruptcy now, so that's that's a bit of an issue, his side. But he essentially, at the point that we were filming out there, had um, over 2,000 rhino that he was farming. Um, he was waiting for international trade in rhino horn to open up, and he was fighting for, for international trade in rhino horn to become legal. Uh, nationally, I believe it was illegal at the time, but not internationally. Um, and he was banking on the fact that um, if you could farm rhino and you could harvest the horn from the rhino and sell them into that market of demand in the Far East, you could save a species. Mm. Uh, because it costs m so much money on security to have rhino on a private game reserve or, you know, even the government, you know, the amount of money that they have. A rhino is worth more dead than it is alive. And no one really wants rhino because of the amount of, you know, millions of U.S. dollars have to go into the security of those animals if you have them on your on your reserve. So his idea is, is to farm them. Um, but, yeah, there's it, there's issues with that. You know, in the Far East, they're saying, well, this is all great, but we don't want farmed rhino horn. We want wild. That's where the value is. And it's oh, it, it's so complicated. Um, yeah, when me and when we discuss farmed rhino, so what it is, they live on a reserve. They're tranquilized, what, every year? Yeah. And then the, the horn couple is cut. Years, I think, yeah. Couple of years, the horn is cut off, and then you would sell the horn. The, the rhino gets to live on. It's not. Yeah, it's made of keratin. It grows back just like your nails grow back. Yeah, made of the same stuff. It's yeah. absolutely bonkers, isn't it? That the forest like we want wild horn. I'm like, it's fingernail. Like that's all it's it is. It's just keratin, guys. Yeah. Like it's just. A bit, but that's the thing is, you're you're up against you know centuries of of medicinal beliefs, um, and it, and it involves you know now it's not just the medicinal value. It's it's you know it's used um, quietly behind the scenes in um, big business trade deals. Um, you know, it's 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 a seen as a token of if you can give somebody in a, a business deal uh, some rhino hornets. You know, seen as a good gesture that you've got the youngsters now who are going to you know wealthy. Is going to parties and using sniffing it like cocaine. There's there's so many different uses. It's just evolving and evolving. And so how do you ever get away from this demand? So in a way, a lot of the guys are saying, well, you got to look at it holistically and say, you know, we've got to go out and and in country where the issue is and where the demand is is have educational stuff happening and you know having really high profile sportsmen and women and you know musicians and stuff trying to change the opinions of of you know that it shouldn't be used out there but it's, it's just so complicated and also you know in the countries where um the poaching happens there's so much corruption you get diplomats having them in suitcases going through 
you know, uh, it's, it's just so hard. It is so hard as well because you can't blame, you know, the farmer that hasn't got a farm anymore because of whatever reason, drought, he's got to support his family, then why wouldn't you go and, mm. you know, kill a rhino to sell the horn where he can make more money than he would in a year? Yeah, look, these these actual it's, poachers yeah. that go on onto the reserves that are hired by the um, uh, the criminal syndicates, they're just cannon fodder. Yeah. They're, they're just guys that go out there. If they get killed, they don't really care. You know, uh, there's plenty more to go. These communities have hundreds of thousands of people. And these communities flank those nature reserves like the Kruger National Park. And they're in such dire poverty that it is literally how can you find any way to make money to feed your children? And when you face that, you know, so it's this is what the documentary in part is about is the human story behind each stage of this chain because you know there's some good stuff and there's some bad stuff and you know when you look at these poachers you know some of them are horrific characters and some of them are just desperate they're just desperate to survive yeah that's it can't even imagine being in their position um your pacific row that you started tell me the story behind that and how come it because chatting to you now you're very successful Anything you set your sights on, you seem to achieve. So what happened there and how mm-hmm. c- how come it didn't didn't come about? Yeah, so um, it's, well, it's still on the back burner. I just got to wait for my daughter to be old enough no. that I can get away for a, like a year, possibly a year and a half. Um, it's it's a dream that hasn't died. Um, yeah. So the idea would be uh, to be the first woman to, to go from North America, West Coast to the East Coast of Australia across the entire Pacific. Uh, it's a Can mammoth undertaking. For people listening, right, so my row was 4,630 nautical miles. That would probably be about, what, 8,000 yeah, nautical? Yeah, and so. well, the thing is, with the rowing, you know this full well, is that you can put as a crow flies, and then, you know, the the actual route is just like spaghetti, and you have no idea. It could take, if something's going to, it's supposed to take you a year, it could take you 10 months if you're in luck, you know, with the current of the weather conditions, you there's know, also a current that you'd have to cross. Yeah. That's 500 miles wide. wide. Yes. Like it's so gnarly. Yeah, and like it just wants to push you back and just mm. eat you up. And yeah, it's nasty. But you know what's interesting? And I think you personify it. The, the hardest thing about these expeditions is getting to the start line. Oh, totally. Because I have no doubt that you could do it physically, but yeah. it, phew, people don't understand how hard the 18 months before I started my row was. Yeah. Completely. Like raising money is is so difficult. It is massive. That is the hardest part. Everybody now is trying to do it as well. Yeah. But with social media now, mm. everybody's able to try and do these crazy things and raise money, and you know, it's it's just so saturated. And companies are getting applications by the hundred every single day for yeah. stuff like that. And it's it, yeah, this is the, this is the big issue, and um, it is on the back burner still. It's just you know, stuff has happened in my career. I, um, I was gonna end it. It kind of evolved for me to row around the UK, um, and that evolved again. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. So now I've uh, got to like catch up. Yeah, and then yeah. I had a baby. Yeah. So now we just got to get a little few years down the line. So please no other female do this. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to do it. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. Like I think people have no idea just getting to the start line. But it's like that, to be fair, it's like that with anything in life. We have all these amazing, great, huge ideas. And, and it's like, 99% of people just don't ever start. That's the hard bit. Just start. And so I end up doing really weird tactics like L. Humphrey's um, great guy, a great adventurer. Um, he ha- he kind of taught everyone this is if you, you know, that, that is, is so hard to get to the start line that just do something that you can't back out of. So for me, book f- booking the flights, 
to location. I might not have any of the funding. I might not have any of the plans out there or anything, but I'm going to book those damn flights to that start location and I better hell get my butt together and <laughs> do something about making that plan happen because now I've spent a thousand pounds. Like I can't back out of this thing as booked, you know, um, you know, and tell as many people as you can. So you hold yourself to account, but it's so hard. It is so hard. Mental game, it really is a mental and emotional game just to do. Putting up without rejection to keep yeah. going. Because I remember going to meetings, pitching my idea, and I'd be like, and I knew full well they're probably going to give me nothing, you mm. know. Um, or you'd pitch to someone, and they'd be like, oh, we can't do £3,000 to buy your food, but what about 500 You'd be like, that. but to be fair, actually, no, you'd be buzzing because at least you got something. <laughs> I know it's true, but yeah, there's is a big issue at the moment. It's like you go to companies and you, you need kind of like a few grand or a few tens of thousands, or in some cases, a few hundreds of thousands, and you're like, and they'll come back to you and say, well, no, we can't do that, but here's a pair of shoes. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit's sake. <laughs> yeah, don't give you 10 but grand, but here's a new iPhone yeah, case. Yeah, no, but it is, you know, like I, I've recently been going back through some of my emails and clearing stuff out, and I send hundreds, literally hundreds of emails out to companies at the time I was fundraising for my Pacific row um i had a company that was going to be the headline sponsor for that and they they were going to put down i think it was two hundred fifty thousand pounds um and everything was kind of go 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 and at the very last minute they kind of emailed to say we are so sorry some internal stuff has gone down um financially we have a lot of change going on and we're going to have to pull out and the devastation of that when you have such excitement you have such get up and go and you're literally on top of the world to have that rip from underneath you, to have square one, start from scratch, nothing, and that hard climb, it's almost impossible to get a sponsor like that for mm. 250 grand. Like, are you kidding me? You can get maybe 2,500, but yeah. 250,000, that doesn't just come by and happen. My so biggest sponsor was 15 grand. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is oh, which is fantastic. Dagger Dive Services, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, massive. I'm very appreciative. <laughs> so yeah, I can't imagine... Yeah. 250 gram being so oh, it's gutting. a mental game you're right it's a mental game of getting to the start um, and I, I don't revel in the fact that I'm going to have to do that at some point when I want to do that well row. I'm <laughs> looking for a partner to row the Indian Ocean no one's gone mainland Australia to mainland Africa that's so if you're interested next night let oh me know because I'm looking yeah. for a partner <laughs> when are you doing it um, 20 probably realistically probably summer 2025 how long is it going to take so it's the same distance, I reckon, about 80 days. Okay, that's not too bad. Doable. Yeah. You know? Completely. What's your daughter's name? Ava. Ava, she'll be in school. She won't even know you got. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cheers, girl. <laughs> Ness, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really oh, appreciate pleasure. it. It's happening. awesome chatting to you. But I've got one final question. If okay. you could give some advice to a young Ness Knight, what would it be? Doggedness. Just utter doggedness, you know. Um, I would say to her that, I mean, you, we see it, I say to anyone, to be fair, that you look around you and you can see absolute numpties who have succeeded in stuff and you're like, how the hell did they get there? It's doggedness, consistency, never giving up. And it doesn't matter whether you're talented or not, just doggedness and you will get what you want. Absolutely. Pers skin. Persistence beats resistance. Super, exactly. Love it. Um, guys, that is the end of the episode today. If you've enjoyed it, please could you follow, like, and subscribe as it really helps grow the podcast. Guys, thank you for listening. Ness, that was awesome. Thank you, thank mate. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>